Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. This is Ethan Elkind. On tonight's show, I'll be talking with UCSF sleep scientist Dr. Eric Prather about his new book, The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. We'll also hear from Datebooks Ann Schrager about fun and festive holiday events happening around the Bay. But first, will the oil industry face penalties for excessive profits here in California? They're ripping us off. They're ripping you off. They're ripping every one of us off. And we're going after these companies. So that was Governor Gavin Newsom that we just played a clip from. And last week, the governor announced the broad strokes of his plan to cap oil company profits in the state. While many of the details have yet to be disclosed, companies exceeding a specified limit would be subject to fines, and those penalties would be collected and eventually redistributed to California residents. The proposal is the latest in Newsom's quest to address record high prices at the pump and to combat what the governor refers to as price gouging by the oil industry. So here to help us understand the plan and the proposal is Samia Kamal, California politics journalist at Cal Matters. Welcome to State of the Bay, Samia. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad you can join us. So Samia, can you give us a little background here? Why has Newsom decided to take on the oil refiners here in the state? Yeah, so like you said, um, you know, uh, Newsom feels that these companies are not engaging in fair practices. He feels that they're price gouging. Um, what has happened this year is there has been some reduced supply due to uh, maintenance at oil refining um, plants. And so that did reduce the supply. But what Newsom says is happening is those oil companies are taking advantage of, you know, the reduced supply um, to pad their profits to manipulate prices. So that's what he wants to regulate. Got it. And then how high were profits this year for these large refiners? Yeah, so the top five oil refiners posted profits of about $68 billion from January to September of this year. And that was about four times as much as the same period last year um, when it was about $17 billion. And what else has Newsom tried to decrease prices at the pump or have other state leaders tried? So there is another bill that uh, Governor Newsom signed into law that would require oil companies to be more transparent about the pricing structure. You know, we have a general idea of what goes into what we pay at the pump, including the price of crude oil, taxes, you know, um, uh, the other layers that go into the the pump. But we don't have as transparent a look at supply chain contracts about, you know, what exactly is driving those costs up um, in California. Um, mm-hmm. You know, here we do pay more than um, pretty much anywhere else in the U.S. So uh, I think the idea is that more transparency would help the state uh, regulate those prices and know, you know, when when a penalty is um, is due. Yeah. Well, Samia, you kind of hit the nail on the head, which is that we are paying higher prices for at the gas pump than other states in, in this country. So why is that the case? Why why are we paying more here in California than other states? 
So, you know, there's, uh, as we all know, there's always seasonal changes. Um, you know, one example in the summer, there's a different oil blend that is required in California um, that has to be, you know, that is California has stricter requirements for what that blend is supposed to be to make sure that it doesn't pollute the air as much. Um, so that costs a bit more. Um, you know, we have higher taxes in the state. But what the problem is now is, you know, these fixed prices have kind of been in place. So what's happened this year is really, you know, um, above and beyond what those fixed prices are. And that's why um, legislators and, and the governor want to uh, crack down a bit on the industry. Well, and you certainly hear conservatives saying that some of the higher prices are due to the fact that we have stricter environmental regulations in the state. In some cases, they attribute all the higher prices to those environmental regulations. Is that true or how much of a percentage are those regulations causing these price increases? It's a it's a small part of it, you know, um, for example, the, the summer blend is more expensive, but um, we also have fewer refineries in the state. I believe, um, you know, a couple decades ago, it used to be somewhere around 50, and now it's down to 10. And, you know, another thing that happened this year was there was maintenance at the refineries, so um, the supply went down. And, um, you know, that, that, that drives into what, you know, what we're paying at the pump, how much is available. Um, so it's not just uh, the environmental policy. It's sort of a mix of things. Yeah. Well, and it seems like, as you say, we don't have a ton of transparency here, but what does the oil industry say is the reason for the higher prices? Um, you know, they they do push back on the idea of price gouging. Um, they attribute it to costs and, you know, due to uh, global circumstances, the situation in Russia and Ukraine, we did see crude oil go up. Um, but uh, yeah, that's like you said, where the disclosure comes into play is um, we don't have the full picture on on why else it's going as high as it is. Well, and you make a good point that this is a global commodity. Is the war in Ukraine a big part of the reason why we've seen gas prices go up? Um, it's part of it. One of the sources um, of our oil supply was Russia. And um, we also get oil from from Ecuador from other places so it's not the only place we we're getting oil but um we and we also I believe they call California a gas island you know we don't have um our own uh supply as much but going back to the environmental question you know our um the state's ban on uh hydraulic fracking um that also plays somewhat of a role Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Newsom is branding this policy as a penalty rather than a tax. Can you explain why he's taking that approach and why that distinction might matter? Yes. So a tax requires a two thirds majority vote in the legislature. And, you know, right now, the proposal that has come out, it has blanks for, for the numbers. And so, you know, I talked to some legislators when they came for their uh, organization session the first week of December. And because there's so little known, there was, you know, not a, and everyone was just like eager to get on board just yet. Um, so with a penalty, uh, you don't need that high of a vote count. You don't need a two thirds vote. You just need a majority. Um, and so it's, it's you know, easier to pass in the legislature. Um, although, you know, Newsom said that that was not part of his calculation, um, but it certainly doesn't hurt. 
Yeah. Well, does it make it harder to survive any legal challenges if it's if he's trying to squeeze it into this bucket of, of being a penalty rather than a tax? I mean, does that does that make it more more uh, suspect in the courts if, if they have to review it? Um, it it might, although, you know, the state attorney general has already um, come out with his support, Attorney General Rob Bonta, and he is prepared to defend it in court. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure if, you know, between a penalty and a tax one might be uh, easier in the court to defend or not. And I guess, I, you know, we should note first, you just got to get it passed through the legislature before right. we worry about that. But I was just curious. And the other question I had about that is, is what that means in practice. If it's structured as a penalty, how would it work? And I know, obviously, a lot of these details are blank, as you noted. But uh, do you have any sense as to how it would be implemented? Yeah, so so right now, the idea is that the State Department of Tax and the State Energy Commission would um come up with, uh, you know, the the percent of uh, profit uh, after which companies would be fined. And um, that that percentage would be set annually, I believe. Right now, discussion is July, and then it would, you know, be adjusted to the consumer price index. Um, and then there would be about a two-week period where uh, companies would be evaluated and, and they would have to um, uh, you know that those bodies would would decide whether they uh, are fined or not. Mm-hmm. And and if they are paying the penalty, where would that money go? So it would go to a price gouging penalty fund, um, and then the legislature would need to decide when that money gets um, released, dispersed to to residents of California. So it would be returned to the voters, and some maybe some kind of refund or rebate. Is that right? That's the idea. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And uh, also curious then, will this fee or or penalty tax or however, I shouldn't say tax, that's not the appropriate word, but how, how will this fee, um, uh, how would it be, how would it translate to consumers at the pump? Would that mean that some of the fee might be passed along to consumers? In other words, is there any danger that it's going to lead to higher gas prices? You know, um, I think it's still uncertain, but uh, some economists that reporters at CalMatter spoke to said that there's no guarantee that a penalty would lower prices at the pump. And that would be because, you know, the penalty would be for oil refiners, but, um, you know, local gas station owners, they wouldn't necessarily have a penalty, so they could still... Um, you know, keep the prices up. Um, so it's it's uncertain whether this would be a successful strategy um, to lower prices. And are there any examples of this kind of a penalty scheme being operational in other jurisdictions or is California being a bit of a pioneer here? Um, so I believe there was an example in Alaska. Um, and I apologize, I don't know the uh, outcome of that. I know it's also something that has happened during World War One, World War Two, and, you know, the um, money that was collected did pay for a, a good percentage of, of, you know, costs. So it, it's been done, um, but uh, we don't see it commonly. It's not something that is happening in a lot of other states at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I gather the proposal also contains some new regulatory review and oversight. Can you tell us a bit about those aspects of the proposal? Yes. Yeah, so the uh, so Newsom's proposal seeks to 
um, expand the authority that the Energy Commission has to, you know, investigating, to reviewing contracts, to getting information and being able to put it out there to the public. Um, and, you know, that goes back to what we talked about earlier is just more transparency into what is causing these price hikes, why the costs in California are so much higher than other states and, um, you know, what what can be done about it. Mm-hmm. And what are you hearing so far in terms of what economists are saying about this proposal or what they say about windfall profit taxes or penalties in general? Do they, are they generally supportive? Do they find these types of approaches to be effective? Um, I have not heard a lot of confidence necessarily in the windfall tax. Um, um, and, and that may be because we don't have, you know, a lot of other good examples of the oil industry to look at. Um, But I think it's just, you know, so early with this one, with so many of the numbers still blank that um, it's hard to say just yet. Mm -hmm. And then what about the politics of this? Do you think this is actually going to get through even just with a simple majority through the legislature? So I think that's what was interesting, you know, without having a lot to um, review on on that day of the session. Lawmakers weren't extremely confident, just, you know, many of them support the idea, but they are still kind of waiting to see what, what you know, details are flushed out. And that's something that we'll see um, happen more in January. You know, there will be more um, committee hearings and more discussions for the legislature to work out with the governor what those numbers should be. Um, so mm-hmm. kind of early days. Yeah, but it seems like at the same time, the oil industry is a major funder of many of these uh, legislators' campaigns. So how does that play into it, especially when you've got this divide between so-called progressive Democrats versus moderate Democrats, much of which seems to be about who actually takes uh, money from the oil industry? So how how does that play into this? Yeah, it was a big theme uh, throughout this election, you know, which candidates were um, either being funded through uh, campaign contributions or through independent expenditures. Um, one example was um, Angelique Ashby, who ran in the Sacramento area. She um, got a lot of support through independent expenditures, meaning she didn't um, raise it directly through her own campaign, but the oil industry put money into supporting her. Um, and she did disavow that funding. And I talked to her at the session and um, she said she was supportive of, you know, Newsom's proposal, but um, she has yet to, you know, take an actual vote, of course, or make a make a decision. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see if the oil industry will get a return on their investment in those <laughs> campaigns, I guess, once there's a more final proposal and some votes. In the meantime, what is the oil industry saying that they might do in response if this penalty ta- uh, passes the legislature? Are they threatening any action uh, in terms of changing how they do business or lawsuits, anything like that? Um, not at the moment. You know, they are pushing back on the idea. And I think the messaging right now is that you can call it a penalty, but essentially it's a tax. And, you know, it's another tax in California. And um, I think that idea can make some politicians nervous. Um, it's, you know, not always a winning strategy for, for business in California. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I have not heard of specific, um, you know, actions taken. Yeah. And what's the timeline now coming up? What's, what are the next steps for the legislature and the governor here? 
So the legislature comes back on January 4th and we are likely to see some action, I'm sure, pretty soon after that, because I know there are a lot of eyes and ears on this. Yeah. And do you think if this fails for any reason, are there other moves that you could see California lawmakers taking to lower gas prices? Yeah, I think, you know, there's already that one bill about transparency, and I feel like we are likely to see more more kinds of regulation, you know, more kinds of oversight efforts um, if if the, they're not able to pass a penalty. All right. Well, we're going to have to wait and see what happens next. Samia Kamal, California politics journalist at Cal Matters. Thank you so much for joining us here on State of the Bay and explaining this proposal to us. Thank you for having me. All right. Coming up on State of the Bay, simple and effective solutions to solve your sleep issues. And we'll take your questions. That's right after this short break. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Are you one of the 70 million Americans who chronically struggle with sleep? If so, get ready to take some notes. I guess that's if you're still awake, that is. But hopefully you are and ready to listen into this next segment because science shows us that a good night's sleep may be the secret to being a happier, healthier, more empathetic and productive person. Yet, according to UCSF professor of psychiatry and sleep researcher Eric Prather, Sleep often ends up being the last thing on our to-do list when, as he says, really it should be the first. In his new book, The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest, Prather shares his science-backed strategies to help us all get a better night's sleep. And he's here tonight to take your questions. So welcome to State of the Bay, Dr. Eric Prather. Hey, thanks for having me, Ethan. So first, we're going to open up the phone lines because we want to hear from our listeners on this. So if you have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, or if you have strategies that you found to help you catch some of those Zs, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay, or you can email us at stateofthebay at org. So, Eric, you write in the book that you disagree with the old adage, you can sleep when you're dead, which I definitely heard from my grandma. Why? Why is sleep so essential to our health and well-being? I mean, sleep sleep is absolutely kind of the glue that holds our life together. You know, as you said in the intro, I mean, when people get the sleep they need, I mean, they're better people. We're better partners. We're better parents. We're more empathetic. We're better to able to manage stressors, but also it has this really fundamental role in our health, right? We know there's lots of data now that supports kind of people who don't get enough sleep kind of have higher blood pressure. They have a harder time kind of regulating their metabolism. It's associated with increased weight gain over time. It's associated with depression and anxiety. And, you know, some of the work that we do here at UCSF, we're also finding that it's associated with kind of impaired immune functioning things like how you respond to vaccines. And so kind of all of these things tied together really underscore the importance of making it a priority for kind of the health and well-being and really for just kind of being your best self. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think many people can relate to that, just knowing what it's like to feel good on a day after you've had a good night's sleep versus not. And how big of a problem is it for Americans struggling with sleep? How widespread is this? Yeah, I mean, as you as you noticed that, as you noted that seventy million people aren't getting the sleep they need. I mean, I think you know when the in in kind of population based data when they ask about insomnia symptoms, which is a lot of what we deal with um, in our clinic at UCSF. You know, it seems like almost a hundred million Americans report insomnia symptoms. And that's really challenging, right? Like that really affects our day-to-day lives. And the good news is that there are there are things that we can do. There are strategies because of what we know about how sleep is regulated that can help kind of fix those issues without reaching, say, for a pharmaceutical drug, right? Because that really can mask the problem. It doesn't it doesn't address the underlying processes that are in place that perpetuate insomnia. Mm-hmm. Well, and you also note in the book that the lack of sleep, I mean, first of all, it's it's a safety issue if you're out on the roads, you know, sharing yeah. the right of way with someone who hasn't gotten a good night's sleep, may not be in control of their vehicle, but also it's a social justice issue, as you point out. And I thought that was really interesting. Can you explain a little bit of, of why it's a social justice issue? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, sleep is is a human right, right? Like everyone should have the opportunity for rest and restoration. But it turns out that not everybody has that option. And it really falls often on kind of racial, ethnic lines, socioeconomic status, because of the, the, the drivers that contribute to poor sleep. So environmental factors, the jobs that we have, the autonomy that individuals have can really um, be undermined by kind of these structural factors. And so we do see these kind of rampant uh, sleep disparities um, in, say, say, Black individuals are kind of twice as likely to have insufficient sleep. So, so getting less than seven hours of sleep uh, per night compared to white individuals. We see the same thing around socioeconomic li- lines as measured by household income or ed- ed- educational attainment. And a lot of this is kind of like neighborhood factors, right? Like, you know, s- you know, certain aspects of our population, uh, you know, have to live in na- live in neighborhoods where it's hard. Like, there's light pollution, there's noise pollution. Um, and often don't have the same freedom around um, kind of time use that some of us are are privileged to have. And so this, this contributes to um, both these sleep disparities, which then in turn map onto these very same racial health disparities that we've kind of learned so much about, you know, during the pandemic and, and certainly well before then. Mm-hmm. Such an interesting structural factor, you know, it keeps people in poverty when they're in these neighborhoods and in these life circumstances that prevent them from getting the sleep that they need to be productive and and improve their their situation. So let's talk about your book, The Sleep Prescription. You set out to improve the reader's sleep in seven days, and the book is organized that way. And you start with the time that we wake up in the morning. So let's start with that. Why is the time that we wake up so important to our quality of sleep? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think if, if there was a, one thing that I tell everyone who have, that has sleep problems, I mean, the first thing you want to do is try to stabilize your wake time in the morning because, and, and this is seven days a week. And this is because it really sets in motion everything for the rest of the day. Our sleep is regulated by kind of two primary biological drivers. The first is our circadian rhythm. This is our internal clock, right? And and when we kind of get up at the same time each day, our body knows what to do. It, things become more predictable. The clock becomes more entrained. Um, and then the other driver is what's called our homeostatic sleep drive. This is kind of a balloon that fills up with sleepiness throughout the day. 
And so if you kind of focus on when you wake up, it sets in time when that balloon starts filling with that sleepiness. And so, you know, those things need to work. They're independent processes, but kind of the more they're aligned, the better things work. And I think the other issue around kind of setting awake time is that a lot of people here, you know, I need to go to bed at the same time each night. And for people with insomnia, that can actually be really distressing, right? If I tell them someone, you know, okay, well, you need to be in bed by 1030 and they're not sleepy and they're kind of watching the clock and ticking, 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 getting closer to 1030, that actually can create a lot of distress. We can't control when we fall asleep. Sleep comes to us, right? It washes over us, but we can't control when we wake up. So that's a really great place to start. Mm-hmm. So does that mean we can never sleep in? Because I really enjoy sleeping on the weekends if I have the chance. <laughs> so probably the most common question that I get is that one right after I just go through all that whole part. Um, <laughs> and it, it's certainly the case that, right, like, you know, do we need to sleep in? And 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 I guess my argument is that, you know, if you have sleep problems and you're trying to work on them, this is the place to start. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're sleeping in every weekend and it's for many hours um, you know, you may want to take a look at like what's going on in the week, right? Like what is the sleep debt that's accruing? Because we're also learning more about kind of sleep debt as a risk factor and this um, and social jet lag, which is kind of the shift in timing of your sleep from weekday to weekend. These seem to be independent risk factors for, um, you know, chronic diseases. And so, you know, it's not that it's bad. I mean, certainly you can try to make up some of that sleep. You honestly can't make up all of it. But um, and if you don't have sleep problems, you know, indulge, right? Like sleeping in on the weekends is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two little kids, so I haven't done that in forever, but <laughs> you know, but yeah. like, but, but if you have sleep problems, like that's, that's a good thing to look at. Like, you know, what, what can we do? What strategies can we, um, engage so that we can get things back on track? Yeah. Well, when your two kids become teenagers, I think you'll, you'll probably have a tough time getting them out of bed. And that actually leads right. to my, my next question, which is, do these recommendations apply to people at all stages of life? I mean, specifically with, with teenagers, it seems like, you know, I remember when I was a teenager, you just kind of naturally stay up late and sleep in. School interferes with that. But then the weekend is the time to make that up. Is that something you would not suggest for teenagers? Yeah. So teenagers are in a tough position, right? So as we kind of move from kind of late childhood into early adolescence, there's a a biological change that occurs. I mean, there's so many biological changes that happens with with becoming a teenager. Um, But, you know, it's actually you become your your circadian preference, meaning kind of like when you want to go to sleep becomes delayed, right? We have this preference to um, go to bed later and get up later. And at the same time, that sleep drive that I mentioned, that balloon kind of fills slower. And so it kind of, it, it's kind of a recipe for um, kind of, you know, later bedtimes, later wake times and the sleep debt that co- comes with early start time, school start times. This is why so many of us in the sleep medicine community have been advocating for later school start times, which California happens to be the, you know, the one great example where this has been enacted, at least for mm-hmm. high school. And so, you know, but I mean, honestly, like the the kids need their sleep. And so if it means that they can kind of sleep in on the weekends a little bit to make that up, that that probably is helpful unless they're starting to experience kind of, you know, rampant insomnia, uh, things like that, where you might want to make, some, you know, do some interventions, which are, you know, the same ones that are outlined in this book. I, I will mention that the the book tries to distill principles from cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or CBTI, which is the first line treatment for insomnia. It's what everyone should try before they try a pharma pharmacologic sleep aid, which is, but it's rarely the thing that they get first because, you know, providers don't, don't know where to send them. 
Um, and, you know, they want to help the patient in front of them. But um, it's mm-hmm. certainly the thing to do and, and what I tried to lay out in this book. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like this is a, your book provides some really helpful ways to start before you kind of go to that more more dramatic pharmacological type stage. And one of the things you talked about that I found really interesting was the connection between stress and sleep, which I think is intuitive for a lot of people. The more stressed out you are, the harder it is to sleep. So can you talk how about how those two uh, interact with each other uh, and reinforce each other and what some of the strategies might be to address stress that's preventing you from sleeping? Or sleeping soundly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right, like, stress and sleep are like what 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 fills our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, certainly we know in the you know for people with insomnia, like it's usually kicked off with some kind of stressor, right? Like things can kind of impact our ability to fall asleep, or when we wake up, you know, our mind starts worrying, and you know, we are worrying about the fact that we're not sleeping, or like the things that are happening tomorrow, or the things that happened yesterday, and that can really eat away at our ability to sleep. But what's really interesting and what we found and what other groups around the country have found is that, you know, though stress can impact people's sleep, where we see the strongest effect is when people don't get the sleep they need, they are much more sensitive to stressors. I mean, kind of akin to what you were mentioning, kind of how you feel after a bad night of sleep. And it turns out that I always think about it as, you know, little things feel like big things to people when they don't get, have the sleep they need because our ability to regulate our emotions, our big, our ability to kind of let things roll off our back is impaired. And, you know, as a consequence, people experience things more stressfully, right? They're more sensitive. They have a bigger reaction. And then, you know, that puts you in a position like that could potentially lead to bad sleep the, the, the coming night, right? Mm-hmm. So you get this kind of cycle. But the good news, I think, is or the the hopeful framing is that it actually provides two opportunities for intervention, right? These things are tied together, but that means we have strategies to help people manage their stress. I mean, here at UCSF, when we do a lot of work on you know meditation and and other kind of stress reducing uh, practices, which can have a spillover effect and help people sleep better. But also, we have these tools to really impact an individual's sleep, kind of get that back on track, giving individuals kind of the 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 capital to be able to deal with the 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 slings and arrows that we all face right but having mm-hmm. kind of that armor built up so that you can kind of go throughout the day and still have a good night's sleep uh that coming night Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about some of the strategies that you recommend, but first I want to let listeners know this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Ethan Elkind, and tonight we're talking sleep with Dr. Eric Prather, who's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences right here at UCSF and author of the new book, The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. Does stress keep you up at night? What do you do to find those quiet Thoughts that help you rest, we want to hear from you. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or you can email us at stateofthebay at org, or find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. Well, Eric, let me ask you about some of those stress reduction strategies. You you talk about uh, micro breaks as one, and you mentioned meditation as well. Can you talk a little bit about uh, micro breaks and, and some of the other strategies you recommend to deal with stress. One I, I liked in particular was this idea of setting aside a, a stress time in the daytime where you can just take a few minutes to stress as much as you want to take that pressure <laughs> off stressing in the middle of the night. But I'd love to hear you talk about these because they were really, yeah, absolutely. Really I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of these are kind of things that, 
you know, we've heard about for a long time, like the idea is to not let stressors kind of build up, like build, you know, we only have so much in the tank. And so we want to make sure that we're kind of kind to ourselves and, and carve out some time for breaks during the day, right? And it can be really short, but it's really important to be intentional, right? And you can do what you want with your time, right? You can, um, you know, do a, a brief meditation, say on an app or something like that, or just like go outside, you know, see what's going on, talk to someone at the water cooler, something that is kind to yourself that kind of gives you some of that extra resilience. I kind of think of it as kind of the new age, new day kind of smoking break, right? Like that like used to be built in to the workday for for so many of Americans. And and it serves a purpose of kind of breaking away from the day and doing something for yourself and this way, not kind of a, a cancer causing agent. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but I, then the I, thing... That, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yo, no, so good. Ethan. Well, I was going to say, I, I like how you also just kind of broke up stress into rumination versus worry, where rumination is people who tend to dwell on past events that they wish had gone differently versus worry, where it's more future oriented. And so I, I wanted to get your sense as to how different strategies might affect either of those, because p- people tend to suffer more than, on one side of that ledger than the other, at least in, in my experience. So I'm curious uh, if, yeah. how you would, how, what you would recommend for people. Who yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, right. Right. Absolutely. So there, so there's, there's worry and there's rumination and we, you know, turns out both of those things are alive and well, um, especially in the middle of the night when we're wanting to be sleeping. Um, but, you know, with the, with the worry and kind of getting to what you were mentioning earlier about kind of carving out this time, one of the things that seems to be helpful for a lot of people who have insomnia or has, or have the tendency to, to kind of worry in the middle of the night is to actually schedule out some time in the day to do that worrying. And so we call it worry early. And it, it, it's again about being intentional and spending, say, 15 minutes, put it in your schedule and sit down and just get those worries down, like let it run its course, but then and use that whole time. It's yours. But at the end of 15 minutes, you, you end it and you say, OK, I did my worrying. Then when you go to bed at night, if it comes up again, you can say, oh, like I already did this when my mind was sharper because when we're in the middle of the night, we're never really in a place to, to, to do that. Um, well, anyway, um, and then you can say, "Oh, well, I also have time scheduled tomorrow for this," and just doing making that a practice actually seems to be helpful, and taking that off of people's plates and allowing them to get back to sleep. Now, yeah. the rumination piece, right? This idea of like you you're kind of replaying these things, these events that happened that you wish had gone differently. That's that's challenging, and some people are kind of more prone to ruminate than others. Um, you know, things that seem to be effective for that, particularly in the middle of the night, are is really kind of the tried and true things of, um, you know, focusing your attention on something else, right? It mm-hmm. turns out we can only hold so many things in our mind at once. And mm-hmm. so whether it's distraction, like reading or, you know, listening to music or uh, watching television that you've seen before or doing something like meditation, again, you know, just diaphragmatic breathing, things that we know for most people can increase that relaxation response, turn down that nervous system to allow people to get back to sleep. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to work at it, right? I mean, sometimes things crop up. And I think another point of this book is that like, not every night of sleep has to be perfect, right? These strategies, if put in place, can increase the probability that you're kind of going to have a better night's sleep on average, mm-hmm. right? But life happens and that's okay. 
And well, that's a, that's we a really calming it, message from your book, not to stress too much if, uh, if you don't have a, a good night's sleep. And I think that's hopefully reassuring to a lot of people you know, who maybe don't have serious struggles, but enough where it's really impeding their ability to feel good and, and feel productive. Uh, we did have a few listener uh, questions by email that I wanted to relay to you. So one listener writes, I like to take CBD to relax before bed. How does CBD impact our sleep? And I guess I'll add on the related question of uh, cannabis in general, now that it's you know basically legal, it's legal in the state level here and maybe in the federal level soon. What's the research on uh, CBD and cannabinoids on our sleep? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, the, it's it's obviously a really important area for research. Um, you know, I mean, and it will be game changing if and when it becomes legal at the federal level, because that has largely been the the barrier, right, to doing it. So a lot of the work that I do, that my colleagues do, it's funded by the National Institute of Health. And so, you know, but, the, you know, because that's a federal agency, um, you know, they don't provide necessarily easily any funding to to do that kind of work. But it's obviously the kind of the, one of the most common things that I that I am asked about. And I believe for some people, it's really effective, right? But there's a lot of varieties there. And so we're, you know, trying to understand kind of what works for who, um, you know, is it, you know, it, it's certainly um, maybe a better alternative than say, taking Ambien every night, but it does, it is a chemical, and, you know, there is some psychological dependency that can come with that. And so mm-hmm. I guess my, I advocate for like, okay, like, let's try to find things that, um, you know, you're not reliant upon and let your body kind of do the, do what it's kind of built to do, which is to sleep. Um, but, you know, that being said, there's, you know, so much that we need to learn about those agents because, you know, people are using them, right? And so we, we just want to be able to inform um, the consumers about what what will work best and and what we know kind of in a placebo controlled trial sense, um, and mm-hmm. and and so hopefully we'll be able to do that work in the in the yeah. near term. Frustrating that uh, that's one of the consequences of the federal prohibition on uh, research because it would be fascinating I think to get more insight on that. But what about other substances that are commonly used like caffeine? I mean, there's this midday mid afternoon slump that you talk about in the book and many people do reach for that cup of coffee to get through it what's your response to to that type of uh way to medicate being sleepy in the uh, in the afternoon or in the morning for that matter yeah i mean caffeine is kind of the most common drug that we use uh as a society and um it's really good it's really effective in um kind of uh keeping us alert uh, the the problem is that it's actually in our system for a long time, and so the the half life, meaning like how long does it take for half of it to be gone from your system, is about six hours on average. So if someone you know has a double espresso at four p.m., at ten p.m. they still have a single espresso in their system, and so it's no big surprise that that's going to make it maybe difficult for them to fall asleep or you know change the architecture of their sleep. And so, you know, we want to try to avoid that. But then, of course, like, what do we, what do we do, especially in that midday slump? And and so, one of the things that I used as kind of a novel example is, you know, maybe uh, cold exposure. So something that was like picked up, you know, in the media was, you know, I used the example of, um, you know, if you can't, if instead of having that caffeine, why don't you stick your head in the freezer, right? Hmm. And that the idea was that like what we've learned from cold exposure and things like the polar plunge and all that is it 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 activates your sympathetic nervous system it alerts you and there's this novelty to it but you can also get these same kind of um kind of bursts by things like brisk physical activity um in the afternoon right and there's no freezer required 
Um, and so, you know, anything that we can do to try to kind of get our body moving so that uh, we don't kind of over medicate and impact our likelihood of a good night's sleep. Well, the, the head in the freezer one was definitely uh, an interesting recommendation. And, uh, you know, so if anyone's sticking their head in a freezer, we can know that they've read your book, Eric. And that's why uh, they're taking your <laughs> advice there. If you happen to walk in in the break room, at least. Um, right. so I, I wanted to ask also about another surprising recommendation, which was a lot of people assume that we really shouldn't be looking at screens or watching TV before bed. But you actually say that may not be so bad. So can you talk a, a bit about why it may not be so bad and what you'd recommend for that sort of why? down activity. Sure. So you're right. So I mean, a lot of people hear that like you shouldn't be looking at screens. And the reason that, that, that that's usually the message is this concern around blue light, right? This, this wavelength of light, which we know can impact the melatonin system, which is part of the circadian system. Um, it, it will shut it down. And, and the release of melatonin from, from your pineal gland in your brain is important for helping kind of set the table for sleep. And that's all true. Right, that 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 can impact it, and some people are more sensitive than others. But um, I think what probably is more impactful for people is actually the content that they're consuming. Luckily, a lot of the devices that we have nowadays have filters for that bright light, for that blue light, um, and but we often consume content that is incredibly rewarding to our brain and keeps you engaged, and certainly can be the difference between you getting wound you know, wind down to getting wound up. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what I advocate is that, you know, you can use these devices, but you have to use them in a thoughtful way. So first put these shift filters on these night shift or filters on there, but, and, and consume content that is kind of, you know, kind of not so rewarding to your brain. So maybe instead of, you know, binging the, the whole white Lotus series on, (laughs) on the internet, like you can watch something you've already seen before. Things that like you don't need to worry about what's going to happen next. And that can be calming and, and help facilitate that experience of, of relaxation so that you can get to sleep. Um, and I, you know, I just, I just, you know, I want to give people things that they can do because like if you're just you know, told to sit there in a dark room and just wait, like that can also be really distressing. And that, that's mm-hmm. not helping anybody. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you mentioned White Lotus. I was going to ask if that constitutes a relaxing or not uh, way to fall asleep. We have another listener comment. Uh, this person writes, I find that if I wake up with worries or anxiety, I send myself an email. I discuss whatever it is that is worrisome, write what I want to discuss with someone. And by getting it off my chest or exploring solutions, I relax and am able to go back to sleep. That sounds to me like a, a bit of an example of what you're saying about compartmentalizing, but do you, would you recommend that approach or do you think it's better to find a different way to, to be able to relax and go to sleep? I mean, I think, I think that's, that's like a, a, a very reasonable way if that works for them. I mean, I think the issue, the, you know, the concern is that it's gonna, so, you know, I hear so often that, you know, people will kind of open their computer and then it's like, now they're off to the races, right? Like now we're back in work mode. And so you just have to be thoughtful about, okay, I'm going to do this one thing and then to, to, with the, the goal of just letting it go. Because sleep is really about letting go. Um, and so, you know, if that, that does the trick for you, that's great. The other thing I want to mention is that, um, you know, oftentimes when people have insomnia and their mind is really active like that, they actually spend a lot of time in bed just tossing and turning. And what that does is that actually fractures the relationship with the bed and creates something called a conditioned arousal making the bed a place of worry instead of a place of, of, of rest. And so, you know, what I always tell people, if that keeps happening, that you actually want to get out of the bed 
and do something quiet until you begin to feel sleepy again and then get back in because you really want to protect that environment. It should be a shrine to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was some great, great tips for what to do uh, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, finding a quiet, quiet place, but getting out of bed, as as you mentioned. We also had a listener who asked about exercise and what role that might play in a in a good night's sleep. Are there certain times of day where we should be exercising versus not? That's a great question. And, you know, really one that we still need to get some conclusive answers for. I mean, certainly from like a sleep hygiene perspective, we, you know, we as sleep medicine uh, clinicians will recommend that, you know, people don't exercise too close to bedtime, maybe like, you know, not three hours, uh, you know, any earlier than three or later than three hours before bedtime, because it can actually like really activate your system and, and get in the way. But, you know, there's segments of the population where they do that and it exhausts them. And then they have like really deep restorative sleep. It turns out that exercise, particularly high intensity exercise, is one of the few things that we know can actually increase deep sleep. And so, you know, in that way, it's it's really, exercise is really important. It's good for everything, like just like sleep. And so, um, you know, we just need to, you know, it's a, it's a great opportunity for someone to be kind of their own sleep scientist to find out what works for them. But in general, not doing it too close to bedtime um, and, uh, you know, but but making it a part of your of your kind of obviously your daily life, um, things that, you know, maybe don't hurt the joints too much because pain can certainly impact sleep. Um, but, uh, you know, definitely making it part of the, the pillars of health are alongside mm-hmm. nutrition and sleep. And Eric, you know, in reading your book, so much of it actually reminded me of some of the rituals around putting a, a little baby to sleep, you know, the quiet time and and uh, and making sure, ba- you know, baby at a certain age can sleep through the night. Is there any research that maybe people who struggle with sleep maybe didn't quite have that consistent sleep as babies? Is there any connection there between our sort of infant early development sleeping with our adult sleeping patterns? Ethan, that's a great, a great question and a great point. I mean, I mean, both in the kind of underscoring the importance of rituals, like a lot of what goes on when we when we try to go to sleep and how we relax is our body knowing what it's supposed to do next. And those rituals are so important to kind of just helping your body kind of make the next steps in the in the 24 hour day. And then, you know, and certainly with respect to insomnia, uh, there, there does seem to be some people do have these kind of lifelong problems. There's some genetics to it that we're still trying to learn about, but there are, you know, so many people come to my clinic that say, you know, like I've, I've never been a good sleeper. My mom talks about how bad a sleeper it was. And so there's definitely something there, whether it's anybody's fault. I don't, I don't know. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of variety there, a lot of variability. And so, you know, certainly don't want parents kind of feeling bad about how they raise their kids and whether that's going to have these long-term effects and on, on their child, adult child's sleep. But, um, you know, I, I do think, you know, there are people that just have a hard time sleeping and that's a challenge, but, you know, luckily we do have these strategies to get sleep a little bit better, a little bit better over time. Mm-hmm. Well, Eric, this is such a fascinating discussion. Uh, I'm, I'm sure listeners like me would love to hear more. What do you recommend for people who want to get more resources or hear more of your thoughts or, or, or find out about your book? Where, where do you recommend people check out? Well, I mean, yeah, so, so the book is available everywhere. You know, definitely pick it up. Also met UCSF, you know, don't be a stranger. And, and I really want to promote um, the whole Bay Area for sleep. I mean, UC Berkeley, Stanford, UCSF, we all have amazing sleep programs. So if there are people out there that are in need of um, kind of some help on their sleep, uh, you know, d- certainly reach out because I think everyone deserves their best rest. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Eric Prather, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF. Definitely check out his book if you're struggling with sleep, The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. Thanks so much for coming on State of the Bay. Thank you, Ethan. All right. And stay with us. We'll be back for a closing segment just after this break. plan for the holidays. It can be overwhelming to come up with a plan for yourself, family, or out-of-town guests, but we're here to help. Joining me is Ann Schrager, San Francisco Chronicle calendar producer. She's got some fun and festive activities to dazzle you. Welcome to State of the Bay, Ann. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, we're excited to know what we should be doing during the holidays, and certainly the Bay Area can be a really special place during this time, and One of our family's annual traditions going way back was to go to Deck the Hall at the Symphony. That's already happened this year. But are there other classical music events that we should check out? Oh, yeah, definitely. There's a wealth of things to choose from. I mean, the the Symphony has a whole lineup of, um, of holiday events and concerts that are still going on. They have this holiday gaiety show, which is always a lot of fun. It has co-hosted by uh, Peaches Christ and Edwin Outwater is conducting kind of festive holiday stuff. And that's on the wrapper inside, but there's the youth orchestra. They do an annual Peter and the Wolf performance, which is great fun, highlighting the talented youth orchestra. I remember a couple of years ago going to the symphony and they used to do these things where it was... The soundtrack to, I think it's Home Alone. They do things like that anymore? Yeah, of course. This year, there are two of them in the the holiday lineup. The Grinch is one of those. And also Elf, one of my absolute favorite movies. Just so hilarious. And those are coming towards the end of the month. I think that um, Grinch first on the 16th and 17th of December. And Elf would be on the 21st and 22nd of December, I think. And so those are great fun. You get to hear the live soundtrack with the orchestra. It's a great way to get your kids involved in the symphony because they're watching a film that they probably are familiar with and to hear the soundtrack live is just super fun. Right. Well, what if you're in the mood to hear maybe jazz or pop music? Do you have any suggestions? Uh, Yeah. One of the standouts this year, the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley has really great programming this whole month of December. They've got a a solstice theme thing with Barbara Higby and Vicki Randall. Check those guys out. And they're amazing. Her project, uh, uh, Vicki Randall, Drop the Needle, is also wonderful. For people who haven't been there, what's the vibe like? Is it sitting down and listening to music or is it standing up? Yeah, well, the, the venue's been around forever. And actually, it has a new location. I mean, new-ish, maybe five, ten years. And it is state-of-the-art seating, sort of amphitheater comfortable, cushy seats. Well, getting off the the realm of listening to awesome music. Another thing that I really like about the holidays are when the neighbors put up the holiday lights. Some people put on pretty spectacular displays. 
Do you have any recs about where you could go to see over-the-top Christmas lights or holiday oh. lights? As with everything that the listeners earn and earn. And a lot of these things, actually, if you go on to datebook.sfchronicle.com for free, you can get all guides with a ton of more than we're even talking about. But as far as my top picks for lights upcoming, there's going to be a lighted boat parade at the Marina Green by the St. Francis Yacht Club. I think that'll be on December 16th. This year and Golden Gate Park, they've upped the ante again with their entwined exhibit, which is really fun. You wander around and they have sounds and lights and the big sky wheel, that big Ferris wheel there is open past dark. So it's all lit up. It's very fun to check out that whole area. Where where in Golden Gate Park is that? It's Peacock Meadow in Golden Gate Park. And the Ferris wheel is between the DR and the Cal Academy. And is it is it free or do you have to pay for that? Entwined is is free. Oh, perfect. And the Ferris wheel, you have to pay for that. But you don't have to pay to look at it and it looks fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's an Instagram worthy spot. And it's always nice to find something that's free, which is why I kind of like holiday lights. You know, there's a third thing that just came onto my radar recently that I am dying to check out. It's in Visitation Valley by mm-hmm. McLaren Park. They have this new greenway or relatively new, and they have the Visitation Valley Holiday Light Festival oh, on the 17th. Awesome. And that looks really cool. It's a lot of interactive kind of Burning Man style installations all along the entire greenway. I am into that. Well, one of the great things about the holidays is that if you have children around you or in your life, you get to see it through the eyes of a kid. And parents and families are always looking for things to do together with their children, what are some recommendations that you have for things that are happening during the day and things that are happening in early evening? Well, you know, Grace Cathedral is a really good place to bring the family during the holidays. They have a bunch of different programmings that are really family friendly. And one of our favorites is the one that's the Sing You a Merry Christmas, where you're in the cathedral and it's really sensitive to children and and it caters to them with little treats and Christmas play almost with lots of dressed up characters and songs and uh, sparkly bits. Um, If you're going for something before that, we've been doing, my my daughter and I, for a while. Now she's getting a little older, but the teddy bear tea at the Ritz, it's it's a splurge, but it's fun. The kids get a teddy bear and lots of little sandwiches and tea and treats, cocoa. That sounds like another photo opportunity. They dress up for this, for Uh sure. I can imagine. I mean, if you're splurging on tea for your kid, you want them to look nice through that. Um, Well, tell me, we've talked about a lot of kind of Christmas-oriented events. What about for Hanukkah or Kwanzaa? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Oh, I should also mention for the kids, another thing we love is the Cal Academy's Tis the Season. That runs all through January, and it's always fun. But as far as Hanukkah, well, there's Oive in a manger. That sounds like fun. I haven't seen it personally, but I've been reading about it and everyone's kind of talking about it, which is the Kinsey Six. They're a, kind of a drag vocal group variety show doing their take on a Hanukkah slash Christmas production. And every year I never miss Lisa Gedaldig's uh, Kung Pao Kosher Comedy. It's her annual, like, what do Jewish people do on Christmas Day thing is they eat Chinese food. And she has been doing it remotely for the past couple of years for obvious reasons. But this year it's back in person and the Chinese food restaurant closed. And so she's doing it at the community center at Sherith Israel in the city. And that is on Christmas evening. Um, 
always fun. So there's food being served yes, along with the Chinese food, which is the traditional Hanukkah Christmas dinner. In the in the vein of going to see theater during the holidays, I mean, the American Conservatory Theater always puts on a version of a Christmas carol. But are there other theater events that you recommend? Well, you know, the ACT, along with the ballet this year, they have sensory-friendly performances. So if you have neurodiverse people in your theater-going group, they have a performance that is especially catered to people with sensorial differences or needs. And so they put out a a booklet even with everything you can expect. They'll have like Mm. emoji for places in the um, plot where you might expect loud sounds or bright lights. And they're handing out fidget toys. And headphones, although it is sort of the one everybody knows about, they actually have done something interesting this year with, in that regard, in my opinion. And uh, in our guide for Christmas, which is coming up this week, there are a couple more of those as well. Oh, that's awesome. I think it's great that people are creating events that are inclusive for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody wants to go outside the house for the holidays. Some people want to snuggle up and just stay home, especially with a triple-demic to worry about. What options are there for people looking to get into the holiday spirit, but not necessarily, you know, hoofing it to a teddy bear tea or, you know, headed to the theater? Yeah. Well, you know, if the pandemic did anything good for us, it definitely taught our um, already very versatile arts organizations how to survive. And um, one of the things that's kind of stuck around is if you go buy tickets for something, you should always go and look ahead to see if there are options for free or ticketed viewing of live performances online. And you might be pleasantly surprised that you can just stay in your pajamas and um, watch the opera. Instead of putting the Yule log on on YouTube, you can just put the opera on. That's a really good insider tip. Well, with the time that we had left, I want to give you a moment to amplify any other thing that we haven't spoken about that you think is worth our time. There's a jazz thing called the Candlelight Christmas. It's in St. Peter's Chapel in Mare Island. And it's one of the largest collections of Tiffany stained glass windows in this humble little church. And they're having a candlelight Christmas um, with Mike Greensill and a trio. So it's kind of a jazzy Christmas thing. And the funds they raised at that concert will help with the restoration of the the chapel, which was built in 1904. Well, that's a wonderful thing to check out. And all of these listings that we've talked about will be available in the date book of the Chronicles. Or your website, I'm going to forward you some links to all the guides. And also we have the top 25 books and some cookie recipes in our, our wonderful food section as well. There is always a reason to pick up the Chronicle. Um, and well, that's Ann Schrager. She's the calendar producer for the San Francisco Chronicle Datebook. Thanks so much for these great recommendations, Ann. Oh, thank you so much. It was really fun to talk with you. And happy holidays. Happy holidays to everyone. All right. That was my co-host, Grace Wan's interview with Datebooks and Schrager. And that's State of the Bay this week. I want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit our State of the Bay page on klw.org. And up next, up next week, we'll hear from author, journalist, and San Francisco historian Gary Camilla about why he left the San Francisco Chronicle. Tonight's show was produced by Kendra Klang and Chris Nooney. It was engineered by David Kwan. And D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks for listening. <laughs>